Welcome to Cities Unmasked, the U of T School of Cities sponsored podcast about the ways that COVID-19 has highlighted and deepened the contours of urban inequality while amplifying the need for an actualizing tangible action. For each episode in this limited series, we will explore a different lens of cities of inequality in conversation with Lubna Ali, Victoria McCutcheon, Ali Sajid, and Brittany Livingston. This pandemic is just showing us that we've always had the resources and the means to help the communities that are needing the help, you know? It's just who do we prioritize and who do we care about? Recognizing what your community needs and taking it upon yourself in a legal way to, um, you know, transform the space and to make it your own and to take your claim on it. People who have like resource constraints be inadvertently excluded out of green spaces because they recognize that if, if they get sick, they don't have that kind of like access to healthcare. Why is that money going to one big park in an affluent area instead of, you know, in the entire park system? So who are these parks for and and what kind of residents are being prioritized? Hi, everyone. Today we will be discussing urban indigeneity and the city. Most cities are indigenous insofar as they are built on the lands of dispossessed first peoples. Libby Porter, an academic at RMIT University specializing in urban land, property rights, and dispossession, says, Indigenous people, whose traditional territory is now urban, continue to exert a connection to their country in rich and diverse ways that represent the changing cultural expressions of that connection. Yet we rarely grapple with what it means to recognize coexistence in cities and the kinds of challenges to which such recognition gives rise. Canada makes some attempt to celebrate a vibrant Indigenous presence. Half of Canada's First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people live in cities, and more First Nations and Métis people live in Winnipeg than in any of the country's other cities. Compared to about 4% countrywide, Indigenous people account for about 1 in 10 Winnipeggers. What's more, their voices are heard in the cities. Canada recognizes Aboriginal rights and title in the Constitution and the urban shift of First Peoples and Métis has inspired new dimensions of Indigenous cultural expression. But the parallels with so many other countries, not least Australia, are acute. Urban Aboriginal people in Canada, despite their traditional associations, are seen and treated culturally and sometimes officially as less traditional than their rural countrymen and women. In Winnipeg, despite official displays of pride and its significant Aboriginal population is still marred by racial tensions and Indigenous disadvantage. Niska First Nations' Shroud Robinson says, Today, the Aboriginal peoples and other Canadians stand on opposite shores of a wide river of mistrust and misunderstanding. Each continues to search through the mist for a clear reflection in the waters along the opposite shore. If we are truly to resolve the issues that separate us, that tear us at the heart of this great country, then we must retrace our steps through our history to the source of our misperception and misconception of each other's truth. We are joined today by Marissa Campbell, who has worked as a peer counselor and advocate for the Toronto Rape Crisis Centre, as well as a youth program coordinator for CRE. She is of mixed heritage of European settlers, First Nations and Cree. She is currently working at Canadian Roots Exchange as a workshop engagement lead focusing on youth engagement in policy on reconciliation in Canada. Thank you so much, Marissa, for joining us. Um, Let's just jump into it. So for me, I'm I'm kind of like really interested in this idea of like restoring the settler version of history, you know, about how um, Indigenous people kind of like build, build this 
connection to their land through storytelling. Could you could you kind of like take it away and then tell can tell us a bit more about uh, the historical perspective around indigenous issues? Okay, um, so I guess first off, we need to recognize the fact that we are on land that has been colonized. And I think um, to recognize that is crucial when we talk about the way that the relation works between the Crown and Indigenous nations. You are right that there is an element of storytelling. There is an element of um, how we pass down knowledge to different generations. Um, And a lot of that is about respecting your elders, learning from the stories and lessons that they tell, um, and also, too, uh, from the traditions that they pass down. Um, But we cannot uh, talk about that with also not talking about the fact that, you know, we have been here on Turtle Island, what is also known as Canada, uh, for much longer than when settlers arrived. And I think the thing is, is that it's very hard to talk about, you know, how do we as Indigenous people relate to this land, relate to the way that we operate within it, within a Canadian context without looking at um, the relationship that is behind there, the relationship that was established with, with, the, with the crown or with the state, however you want to call it. And I think the reason that, you know, we talk about it as the crown, we have to talk about Canada as a dominion of of England. And that is also a beginning of the relationship between Canadian relations with the Canadian government. You know, a lot of people think about Canada being started or, you know, uh, with the British North American Act of uh, 1867. But the relationship between um, Indigenous, Indigenous communities and settlers obviously started by the time the Dutch came over in the 1600s. Um, so we do have that beginning process and there have been things that have been set up, sort of agreements, as you will, um, that sort of structured the way that we sort of felt that relationships were going to be established and worked with, um, going forward. I think one of the biggest things to also remember is that as Indigenous communities, we have, um, what we refer to as, and I, I also want to preface though, before I go further, is that, you know, I can only speak for my nation. I can only speak for my my aspect and I really want to push that you know we need to avoid that pan-indigeneity and so what I mean by pan-indigeneity is sort of this notion that you know all indigenous people are sort of like work in the same kind of aspects and have the same type of traditions and there has to be a recognition that you know there's over 600 over 600 nations within Canada currently um, and also everyone has their own ways of tradition, their own ways of doing things. So I really want to focus this conversation more so on the relationship between um, how we sort of came to where we are now within relations to settlers and so the relations of how we conceptualize around uh, cities. And so one of the biggest things is if we talk about with the historical aspect is that, yes, Canada came into creation, however you want to call it, um, in 1867. But the biggest start for uh, relationships between Indigenous communities and settlers was actually, if you wanted to look at legislation, was actually the Royal Proclamation of 1763. And so the Royal Proclamation of 1763 was issued by King George III um, after the Seven Years' War, which is also referred to as the French and Indian War. And it was done so because um, it laid out the claim. So basically during that war, it was essentially between the French and the British were fighting over um, control uh, over what is Turtle Island, Canada and the United States. And uh, the French ended up losing <laughs> and Britain won. 
And the thing is, is that a lot of indigenous communities actually um, aligned with the French during that war. And that was also part of because of the trade relations that they had uh, with a lot of the French settlers that came over. Um, the thing is, is that George III realized that uh, in order for the British to succeed um, as this new you know, dominating power, they were going to have to make right relations with um, indigenous communities. And so what they did in the Royal Proclamation of 1763, which is um, sort of unprecedented, there's actually a segment in it that refers to in Indian land, is what they referred to it. And so what it was, it was essentially the, the, the blocking parts, the building blocks of what treaties are. And it stated that there was a certain section of land that was going to be allocated to Indigenous communities um, and that settlers were not allowed to go into that land um, unless it was agreed upon and also too they weren't allowed to uh, they weren't allowed to uh, build on there without consultation from uh, indigenous communities and so part of what that was uh, going forward that was done obviously is issued a decree so it wasn't done within consultation and during the time there was an Indian um, relations relations commissioner uh, from the Brit. British, which had actually been issued in, uh, in 1755, um, because Britain realized that they were going to have to start dealing with the Indians if they were going to survive on this land. And it, his name was William Johnson. And he realized that in order to actually get this relationship going, he needed to do some consultation. And so what ended up happening afterwards was in 1764, which is generally referred to the summer of that is referred to as the Congress of Niagara. He came um, with 24 different nations to discuss how they would issue the proclamation of 1763. And so uh, it came with the idea of the nations coming together as equals um, and also to uh, they were going to discuss and basically decide if they were going to agree to be a part of the Royal Proclamation of 1763. And so after about a couple of months, um, they, the 24 nations agreed, and they actually commemorated it with the Silver Covenant chain wampum belt. And so in order to understand the significance of that is that wampum belts were generally seen as treaties within uh, certain Indigenous communities, predominantly within like Eastern, uh, Eastern, Southern Ontario, uh, Northern kind of around the Great Lakes, I guess is the easier way to say. Um, the wampum belts were actually seen as treaties. And so wampum belts are actually, um, it's not like a written paper. It's an actual literal belt. Um, you don't wear it. It's, it's uh, put together. It's made from whelk shells. And it actually shows, um, it tells stories. And so it's, it's considered a living document. It's considered something that you enter into like as an agreement, as an understanding. And so, it's, but it's also something that is entered into with respect, with the ideas of friendship, with the ideas of um, sort of a mutual agreement that each one who's entering into these covenants are equal. And so the 24 nations presented that, and it's still, it's still considered um, in Indigenous communities as a binding treaty. So, and to give you sort of an understanding of the significance of that is there, it's like to build one shell, and these would usually take 
to build one bead for these wampum belts. And these wampum belts usually consisted of at least hundreds of different beads. It would generally take almost up to six hours to make one bead. So the time and care that was put into these belts um, is significant. And so that was the beginning of sort of the understanding of the way that, you know, relations would would work between the British Crown and uh, with Indigenous communities. That was the building blocks for that. For for our listeners, we're, we're going to add uh, follow-up follow resources. If you're interested, you can go check out our website. We're going to add a few more resources regarding this. Um, I think now, now I really want to, like, um, talk a bit more about, about the land treaties, you know? So... So there's this editorial in the Canadian Journal of Environmental Education that I read, and there's this quote that really stuck with me. It's by it's by Sean Atty, who is the national national chief for the Assembly of First Nations, where he says that the Canadian government has the classic addict's denial about the consequences of exploiting natural resources that rightfully belong to First Nations. So, so there there are like these treaties between between you know like um, the Canadian government and you know like. Uh, and and indigenous people but but there's but there's still sort of like this like lack of awareness or i guess respect about about them um so i guess like in in northern ontario so this is this is from 2012 like the premier dalton mcquinty um they they declared this chrome chrome mineral deposit um and then they were like oh this is a new frontier of economic development but this sort of like neglected how talking talking or like considering how you know like this deposit was located upon or would greatly impact you know like traditional territories homelands and the traditional ways of life of the first nations um if you had any yeah insights and i think that. you know kind of going back to this understanding around treaties and that type of angle and like reserves which are what treaties end up aspecting the reason that's why i brought up the royal proclamation is because that was sort of the foundation and then once canada was declared a dominion of their, their own selves, dominion of Canada, the responsibility of the First Nations uh, in this relationship of building treaties was shifted from Britain to Canada. And then treaties were started to be made between Indigenous communities um, starting around like 1840s up to, you know, 19, 19, uh, 1920s actually. And so treaties were um, essentially made between uh with the canadian government and indigenous communities and also too uh the hudson's bay company helped out quite a bit so uh, i think there's something to be said around that and so i think the concept also too for thinking about it is that what is the concept of land here what is the understanding between um making these treaties for indigenous communities it was about learning how it was about coming to uh, relationships with people that were living on this land. How are we going to work with them? What will we be willing to give? And then what will we be willing to receive? And so um, there's sort of that angle around that. But whereas with like Canadian, the Canadian government, and then it became provincial government, it was the acquisitions, right? So it's like, it's sort of like these two different um, conflicting views, right? Of how, how are we going to, you know, with regards to like provincial government, it's like, you know, thinking about the economics and thinking about like how we can like prosper, but it's also not recognizing that there are traditional angles here within communities and traditional lands lands that are are sacred as well of a certain place that they're putting in. I mean, what we can think of the greatest example right now with what Sutton, 
you know, it's like the with the pipeline trying to go in there, like that's going through, um, you know, going through a specific region. And I want to also preface, though, that, again, coming back to that pan-indigeneity, there are different communities that are in support of these different, um, you know, indigenous communities that are in support of creating this. But I think the, the aspect comes down to is more of the relationship. And so it's it's done with like the lack of consultation. And that's where the main issue sort of comes in. And so it becomes sort of that idea of if we're talking about how are we going to work on this land together, it's like, well, we need to sort of look at each other as working together, where it seems like there's a counter aspect of that, you know, Indigenous peoples are still seen as essentially wards of the state. Um, so I think that is sort of something to also think, think about of where that conflict sort of can come in. Thank you for that. Um, thank you so much, Marissa, for sharing what you have so far. Um, actually, as you were speaking and, and even explaining um, in the beginning of the podcast, the history, um, a lot of uh, words and proclamations, treaties, those type of things between the British and the French, and um, that sort of stuck out to me because it was sort of bringing back uh, memories, vague, very vague memories of, you know, pieces of different pieces of knowledge that I learned um, in my grade I think it was grade 11 or grade 10 history class. And um, we were actually talking about this yesterday, uh, Victoria, Ali, and I, um, about how uh, well-versed we felt we could, we were in in the topic of Indigenous studies, um, specifically because we've had different experiences. Um, for myself, I know that uh, we didn't really have a very big focus in our curriculum with Indigenous studies. And so I sort of realized that I have a lot more to learn. And I know for my sister, she's now a lot younger than I am, six years younger. So for her, in her current curriculum, even my cousin, who's like 10 years younger than me, they are learning about Indigenous studies in uh, the school curriculum. But I still question um, the truth that's being told in 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 the stories that they're being learned and how the narrative is being framed. I'm not sure if Victoria can speak to her own experience with that. Um, yeah, definitely. Um no, I found it was kind of interesting because we were all, yeah, we were all discussing this yesterday about how some of us just really didn't feel like we had um, just enough education on this. I didn't have that experience myself. And I don't know if that's just because I'm from like uh, just a small town and they've like put a lot more focus into these kinds of programs. Um, but I know we had like the Native Voices class mm-hmm. introduced as like the replacement for the uh, grade 11 English class. Um, which it was still grade 11 English. It was just, we were using uh, native authors and stuff. We were reading from um, a variety of different indigenous speakers. Uh, we were talking about cultural appropriation. We got to go visit um, a residential school and learn about it firsthand. Um, I felt that I really learned a lot in those years from that, but it's kind of interesting that um, not everybody has had that experience, even though like we're in 2020. I'm just curious, Marissa, if there's like, oh. where do you think we can go with the education curriculum now? Do you think that um, it, it's at a good place right now? Yeah, do you think there's a I, lot I think, more? Um, yes, there's a lot more to be done. I think that, you know, I think one of the things that we have to also ask ourselves when we look at this sort of curriculum is, well, whose stories are we not hearing and why are we not hearing those stories? And so when we think about sort of the notion around land and the Canadian construct and, you know, the Canadian aspect and what what needs to happen for that Canadian legacy to, to carry on? Well, Indigenous people can't be here. 
because we have a rightful claim to this land. So how do we perpetuate that notion within the greater society? I mean, look at right now, even as we look at the conservative uh, conservative government, what's his name, Aaron, the the new PC, Aaron O'Toole, gosh, what a name. Um, Aaron O'Toole, his whole thing is, well, yeah, okay, we'll take land back. That's fine. And I think the thing is, is what we mean when we say land back, it's not so much the physical, actual nature of land. It's, it's taking back our traditional ways of how we hunted, how, you know, we were able to do ceremonies in public and we were able to do that. But Canada has this huge legacy of denying that to Indigenous populations. And I think that's why it's so hard for me to talk about where we are now without talking about where we've come from. And so it's because they trickle down and they affect each sort of way of how people engage with, you know, certain ways. And I can only speak for myself. So I, you know, I grew up in the city. I did not grow up on the reserve. I did not grow up within my community. I am the product of a, uh, my grandfather who was Cree. He was actually was affected by the Indian Disenfranchisement Act. So the Enfranchisement Act were basically if you're a World War II vet and you wanted to get um, your claims from, you know, you know, claims from the government, you had to denounce your status. And so that creates sort of like, you know, like just thinking about that when you denounce your status, you're no longer able to live on your reserve, you're no longer able to, you know, go into different aspects around that. You know, those kind of things are so they're so entrenched with the different formations of the way that the Canadian government has sort of created different acts to sort of interact with people. So it's so hard sometimes to think about, um, you know, how do we talk about getting land back? How do we talk about doing all these different things without talking about like where we came from? So, I mean, while, while, while we're talking about education, um, I, wa- I wanted to like bring it kind of like towards the topic of reconciliation. I know. And I think maybe this like speaks to like your your work, like your work with like indigenous and non-indigenous youth. Um, so how how important do you think that you know like education is for reconciliation, or like if you have um, any, any any general thoughts about about? I mean, your, I think re- yeah, no, thank you for that question. Because I, I think reconciliation is critical to that. Um, to, sorry, education is critical to reconciliation. And I think that the thing is about education is that it is the responsibility of you know, settlers to educate themselves as well of where, where did we come from from here? You know, so it's kind of like how we can't start a dialogue when we don't know what's already happened. And so it's sort of like educating yourself around that, coming to the table around that. It's so critical, you know, for the longest time, people didn't even know what residential schools are, you know, and people still don't know what residential schools are. I have conversations with people from, you know, Europe sometimes. I'll, I'll never forget it. It was the most sort of anecdotal here, but I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago with someone and I was telling them the residential schools and they didn't know what I was talking about. And it was just kind of this moment of like, you know, that's sort of what we're up against. So it's kind of like, you know, that educational piece is so critical. It's also too, it's so critical to keep reminding ourselves of these different topics that come up, of these different issues. But it's also so critical to remind ourselves too of, of the resistance that we see in Indigenous youth, of sort of, you know, ones that are taking back, reclaiming their language, reclaiming their rights, you know, reclaiming their traditional knowledge. And I think those are sort of the narratives that we want to focus on. It's not all, you know, devastation. I mean, it's a lot of devastation. There's no denying that. Um, But at the same time, there's a lot of resistance there. You know, as I like to say, you know, even just by surviving, we're, we're resisting. 
So, um, so I think education, though, is definitely critical for that. There, you can't, you can't go forward without knowing what has happened. And I think it is the responsibility of a just society of if we're actually going to come back and talk about those relationships that we wanted to build within treaties, within the ways that we agree to to work on this land together, it is a responsibility to create that educational system starting at, you know, kindergarten, starting at grade one. You know, this doesn't have to be an other subject. It can be something that's talked about with both, for both. Definitely. Um, there is there is this paper that I found interesting in the Human Rights Review about um, by Jeff Corntesel and Cindy Holder. It's called Who's Sorry Now? Um, and it's about government apologies. And they and they make this interesting point about, you know, like how states, they kind of tend to place... So I'm, I'm quoting this from them. They say states tend to place rigid material and symbolic limit, limits upon apologies and truth commissions to promote political and legal stability. So essentially what they're arguing is that while it's like a step, but like it still falls mm -hmm. short. And so um, you talked about the Indian residential um, schools. And um, so I'm, I'm just wondering if you have any general thoughts about, you know, like the the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada and, you know, like what it represents or like um, if, you know, like in, in their words, like it goes, if it falls yeah, short. Yeah, I think I, I think I'll speak more to uh, the notion around like that public apology aspect and the public inquiries as well. I mean, the fact that the Truth and Reconciliation Inquiry was able to even happen was phenomenal. I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to devalue that at all. Um, but then also recognizing that they made about, I believe, 162 recommendations and actually if you go on CBC website um, it actually can track how much of those recommendations have been covered by the Canadian government uh, there's not a lot that have been let's just put it that way and you know there are there is progress and that is good but you know apologies are fabulous but action is more meaningful and so I think one of the biggest things we can also talk about, too, um, if we kind of take that apology angle, is if we look at what, you know, the latest inquiry that just happened, the Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women's um, Inquiry that was over three years and something that activists, myself included, have been fighting for, uh, fighting for an inquiry for years um, to look at the disproportionate amount of violence against Indigenous women within Canada. And we finally got the inquiry and it was fabulous. And the Canadian government was supposed to give a response in June, and then they cited because of COVID, they're not giving a response or giving an action plan. So, you know, I'm hopeful that something comes from that. I'm, you know, I, it was a very long and strenuous process. But like I said, apologies are fabulous, but action is what is needed. And so, um, so I think those two go hand in hand. I mean, but it isn't it isn't just black and white. There there are different aspects, but I definitely would say that um, yeah, you know, it's great to talk, but uh, we want to see we want to see action. You know, it's like when you talk about you know the fact that like there was a UN report in October that said that you know of of the reserves, seventy five percent of reserves in Canada have contaminated water. You know, so it's like when you think about that. Right? It's like, great, you're apologizing to us for the treatment. Well, where's where where's where's the fixing of this, right? So those are the things that um, we need to think about. And then also too, when we think about Canada, what Canada has the greatest resources to fresh water, and yet seventy five percent of our indigenous reserves have contaminated water. 
Uh, thank you so much for uh, bringing light to that, because I was actually just going to raise the same question about uh, the missing and murdered Indigenous women's report and also the boiling uh, water advisories. There's actually a boiling water advisory just 20 minutes from where I live. And I live in a, you know, a pretty established uh, area of the GTA, which, you know, is ridiculous when you really think about it. Um, so to that point, then I, I'll extend the question to you this way. Um what does an indigenous city, quote unquote, look like to you then, um, considering um, all of the, I guess, uh, the fact that we've had we have settlers now living um, in major cities and we have yeah, to also I think acknowledge. That's a, that's a very um, good question. It's a very big question. Um, I, you know, and I think the thing is, we do have to recognize that, you know, yes, we do talk about history. We talk about sort of, you know, where things have gone. We also have to recognize that we do live in the situation we live now. And I, I think a lot of times what ends up happening is this sort of like vilification of like, you know, when Indigenous folks talk about taking land back, we're not talking about the physicality of land. We're not talking about picking out settlers. We're not talking about, you know, um, like any of that stuff. What we're talking about is respect us as if we are the original caretakers of this land. You know, we do land acknowledgements and that's great. But what do you mean by that? What is your intention of that? What do you want to work towards that? So in my notion of what an Indigenous city looks like, you know, I kind of also am seeing it, though, too. I'm seeing youth come in and, and reclaim their voice and, you know, reclaim their their feelings of feeling that they belong here and that, you know, they're important and you know, they they have a right to do what they want and to do do their traditional aspects. And, you know, and I, I say that and I also want to give recognition, though, but, you know, we do have also a huge suicide pandemic that's happening because of situations where people feel hopeless. So the thing is, I feel like an Indigenous city, an Indigenous land, it's really coming back to how do we make those right relations? And how do we come back to when we initially thought of, We'll work together, not against or apart. Um, definitely. Um, so we, so we've talked a bit about you know like the government's role. What would like in your in your opinion, um, be something that we ourselves could do like in our in our own capacities? You know, like so so what could be like some community approaches towards reconciliation? Uh, in your well, opinion. Um, thank you for asking that, and I would say like you know kind of. Honestly, what you are kind of trying to do right now, you know, educating yourself, that's the first step, you know, like recognizing, and when I say educating yourself, I'm not just saying educating yourself about the history of what has happened between Indigenous communities and relations, but also educating yourself about protocols and about, you know, how do you approach an elder and what is, you know, what is considered sacred and, and not, and, and that information is out there. And I think, you know, recognizing that education and going forward, bringing awareness, working in solidarity, recognizing what that solidarity means, being okay with sometimes maybe not be not being allowed in certain spaces and recognizing that that is not a personal affront. It's, you know, it's just, you know, recognizing and um, respecting traditional traditional uh governance and traditional ceremony and i think that's the thing that i would say is that it's like you know tackling all of this and i really hate using the word tackling that i just did but sort of coming into this is it's not going to be something that's going to go away tomorrow you know this has been basically what 
how how long has what, what did Christopher Columbus come over? What was it again? Like we're talking about like 400, 500 years of colonial rule. We're not going to go back tomorrow, you know? So it's kind of like, how do we keep going to where to create yourself, to make yourself understand like what, what it means to be an ally, what it means to be an accomplice, what it means to be, to work with solidarity with indigenous folks and to recognize that some of the story is yours, but some of the story isn't and being okay with that. To your point about um, educating yourself, I guess I'll just shout this out quickly to anyone listening, but um, uh, if you're interested in knowing more about, uh, you know, the land that you're on and the territories, languages, treaties, any of that information, then you can just um, go to Google and type in native-land.ca and you'll be able to see, you can put in any address and you'll be able to see any of those de- any of those details mm-hmm. globally so for me I just learned about this from a professor actually last year mm-hmm. um, and I put in the place that I was born which is in Georgetown in Guyana in South America and I learned that um, the land that I you know settled on or my family settled on is belongs to the Arawak people um, and you know that was a word that I heard growing up but I didn't know any other details about about it or the significance Um so um, likewise, in the Canadian context, um, I sort of had a similar experience, and I'm sure um, for many listeners that might also be the case. So in case you're interested, um, you might want to give that website a look. Um, but actually, one thing that I, I would say is a really good uh, starting ground um, book-wise is uh, 21 Things You Don't Know About the Indian Act. Um, it's a really great uh, read. Um, it's very accessible, and it gives kind of a very good understanding of the relationship between the Canadian government and uh, the Canadian government and and Indigenous people. Um, another really good read is The Inconvenient Indian um, by uh, Thomas King. Uh, the Yellowhead Institute also has really great resources around different policies that are enacted um, that can, you can access through. That's through uh, Ryerson, through, uh, um, through Ryerson um, University. Uh, those are the ones that I can think of off the top of my head. <laughs> um, there is a plethora of resources that are out there for folks. Um, and it's just a matter of, you know, Google can be our best friend. Um, but then again, going back to like yep. academic resources, always be wary of where your sources are coming from. Um, so I think that's sort of also to recognize around that it's, you know, being mindful of, of what, where the resources are coming from. So those are the three that I can think of right off the top of my head um, that are good places to sort of start. Definitely. Thank you for sharing. Um Marissa, if you, if you wanted to like uh, shout out for, mm-hmm. could give like a shout out for like your, your charity. Yeah. yeah. For sure. So, yeah. So uh, right now I'm currently doing a fundraiser for the Native Women's Resource Center, which is a great organization um, 
a great organization in Toronto. It works with Indigenous women to sort of get them building community as well as giving them resources to how to access employment, how to access housing. Um, it's a really, really great place. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, and and participating in this conversation. I know I definitely learned a lot. Well, thank you so much for having me. Like I said, it is a huge topic. So I hope I was able to shed a little bit of light on it. Um, and again, like I said, I'm, I'm speaking from my perspective as well. So there are definitely scholars mm -hmm. out there that have various other nuanced ways. And again, I would stress that, you know, like, like I said, it's always good to remember, like one person can't speak for a nation, but um, we can give our point of view. So thank you so much for listening today. Um, I hope you learned something new and you found the discussion engaging. Thanks so much, guys. Bye now. Bye. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Cities Unmasked with Lumna Ali, Victoria McCutcheon, Elise Hodgett, and Brittany Livingston. If you like our show and want to know more, please check out our Instagram page at Cities Unmasked. Or leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify. A special thank you goes out to the University of Toronto School of Cities.